You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. When you accept the gift of not knowing, it opens up all these possibilities. Like you don't have to know, and it's okay that you don't know. You don't have to fight that, but then you can start to figure out like, right, who can help me do this or learn what I need to And that's one of the gifts, right? The other gifts is that there's not one right way that something's supposed to unfold, right? And when you let go of those two things, you got to know everything and you got to know the the one right way to do this. If you're already high talent and have a perfectionist streak and all those type of whatnot, man, that will get you in such a deep hole that it's kind of the burn the ships mentality, right? I'm going to do this thing and I have to figure it out because if I don't, it's van down by the river. But there's this other route that you're alluding to here at the end is you can do that or you can ask for help. Like I, I know I need help. I know I can't do this alone. I know we can do amazing things if we bring the right people together. And, and so listener, I want you to think about that thing, right? If any part of this you think has been vulnerable, be vulnerable for a minute and just ask for help. That was Mark Dreger, a successful serial entrepreneur and host of the YouTube show, We Do Hard Things. He joins me today to share his journey of doing hard things, and we really lean into the conversation, and apparently the coaching vibe I was in, to unpack what keeps us and him from doing the hard things. Along the way, we discuss some easier way to do hard things, and they're both simpler and more terrifying than many of us would like to admit. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. Um, Listener, we actually were recording yesterday on his podcast, so you'll hear us in two different ways. And so it was it cracked me up that I got to the end of it and then I looked at my schedule and you're like, oh, yeah, we're doing this tomorrow. And I'm like, tomorrow? Oh, cool. Awesome. So, Mark, (laughs) thanks for round two here. Charlie, this is for your listeners. This is round two. This is round one. This is the real podcast. You you being on mine. That's just the teaser. Oh, okay. I'll take it. Um, I thought you were going to go like, no, we just took a break and then we decided to do it again the next morning. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, I know a lot about you, um, but it's always great to hear the good, good creator. Good things, I hope, right? Um, your team has done a good job of editing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ooh, <laughs> listeners, you know what's about to happen over the next hour. Then. You know what's to come. <laughs> Oh. We're, we're already too familiar with each other is what it sounds like. Um, and so um, before we go dive into the, the deeper part of the conversation, give us a little bit of um, backdrop and how you got to where you are today, because I learned about this yesterday. It's a really interesting story. So hit us with it. Yeah. So uh, I, I grew up I grew up in a construction family. I grew up in the type of family where anyone could build anything with their hands, with hard work. Um, and so I grew up watching my uncles and uh, my grandfather and my mom just fix things, build things, create things, do things. They were all entrepreneurs. And so uh, I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to be an engineer. It felt like the safe thing to do. My family loved it. They were all like, that is an amazing career. That's an amazing path. And I like environment. 
I like creating things. I love light. I love, I loved, I still, deep down inside, I, I mourn the fact that I'm not an architect. Like, like for mm. some reason there's a sliding doors thing and I know I got to let go of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm turning 40 and still deep down inside, I feel like I, I may have taken the wrong path. But in my last year of high school, I'm ready to, to apply to, uh, to colleges, to universities. I'm going to become a civil engineer. And then from a civil engineer, I'll go into architecture. And then I'll spend two years apprenticing. Then I'll get my stamp. And then I'm going to be the greatest architect in the world. And, uh, and I'm struggling for the first time with chemistry. Like I was a student mm -hmm. where, where when I picked something up, I picked it up quickly. I had a great memory. Uh, I could cram before a test and I, and I tested really well. And so when I hit when I hit a course where one I struggled, I didn't understand it, I didn't know how to study, I didn't know how to learn, I didn't know how to ask for help, and suddenly I'm getting like a, a you know a C or a D in something when I'm used to getting like A's, uh, and I was like, I had a crisis of faith, and and it, it was this moment where I was like, maybe I'm not meant to be. If I can't handle chemistry, how can I handle albatra albat albat what's it called? What's the math thing that people learn? I don't even remember. That. Algebra. Algebra. How can I handle algebra? Or how could I go on to, to compete to get into one of the top schools? And it just, my whole life suddenly seemed to come into question. So instead, I went to film school. Like, <laughs> like the total opposite because it seemed easier. It seemed like more fun. And frankly, in, in the photography classes I took, in the communications classes I took, and all those things, people were patting me on the back. Right. I was good. Mm -hmm. The teachers thought I was good. And so I took the easy path and I went to film school. Now, what got me to becoming an engineer, uh, an, an entrepreneur is after film school, I worked in television for a bit. Um, I got a job uh, in sales uh, for about eight months and I hated it. And then I worked at an Internet marketing franchise back in 2005 in 2006, I don't know if you guys remember. I don't, I don't know if our listeners even know what the internet was like in 2005 and six. Charlie, do you remember it? So this this was after mailing CDs. Yeah, yeah. This is after AOL <laughs> Online, <laughs> but before smartphones, right? Yeah, um, I started. I had already started my agency when I remember driving home that it was announced on the news that Apple was going to create a phone. And I thought I had a BlackBerry. I thought you guys are stupid. What do you What do you mean they're going to create a phone? There's no buttons on the phone. What are you talking about? That was the world we were in. <laughs> and so I worked at an internet marketing franchise at their head office, and I was responsible for producing all of the video content for training and for marketing and for communications and and uh, and CEO messages and all this stuff. And I did that for about a year and a half. And it was the greatest learning I could have possibly had. I got a chance to learn about business in an entrepreneurial setting. I got a chance to learn about different business structures. I got to travel with the company to the conferences. Every time that there was uh, a sales training that I had to record, I got to sit in on the sales training. Then I got to edit it and then I got to distribute it. And like, I just, I, I got to soak up. I didn't even realize at the time it was happening, but I got to connect with amazing people and get next level information that frankly, people paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy this franchise system. And I spent a year and a half just like deep diving on it. And mm -hmm. at a certain point, I went, you know what? If I did this for one company and made 45 grand a year at the time, my wife and I were young. Uh, it was, I was the only breadwinner. I was the only one earning money. My daughter was just a week old and just born and my wife wasn't working. So she had no income. But I, this is what I thought. If I'm making 45 grand a year for one company, 
If I did this for 10, I will make so much more money. So why don't I stop working for this one company? Why don't I leave? Why don't I tell them that I should leave and you should outsource the work for me? And I gave them a business case as to why that made sense. But, but I want to go start my own thing, just like my grandfather, just like my uncles, just like everyone in my life who at a certain point just went off and did their own thing. I'm going to go do my own thing because I'm going to make so much money. And uh, <laughs> uh, it, it didn't turn out that that wasn't the case at first. Apparently, that's not how businesses work. <laughs> yeah, it's not the story of the underpants gnomes. Um, <laughs> you, you know what we were talking about with the underpants gnomes is from South Park. It's like, you know, point A, like still underpants blank yeah like profit or success <laughs> yeah, yeah. right there's like a that big, blank a big question mark in the middle of the board where you're like i know this is going to work out because i can envision it right and and i'll figure everything out in the middle <laughs> well this is where i get uninvited from a lot of entrepreneurial conferences um because one of the things that i'll that i'll say when i get a chance is it typically takes 18 months to 36 months just to figure out what you're doing as an entrepreneur even if you've had the immersive crash course that you had, it's one thing to do all of that when you've got a larger structure around you with other people making the shots and other people making money and hiring folks and doing all that kind of whatnot. When you kick off on your own and you have to build that system yourself and you have to learn how to like get customers and sell them and then deliver and then all that sort of whatnot and then figure out all the pieces in between and that there's like 17 different taxes and licenses that you won't know about for the first year until someone pulls up and like, Oh, you owe the city this much money. You're like, what now? Yeah. Right. It takes just 18 to 36 months just to figure out that piece before you start seeing any like real success. And so I think we get, you know, when we see like, Oh, I made $20,000 or I made $40,000. And like, we think like, Oh, I could scale this up. Like, absolutely. You can scale, scale that up five to seven years, depending upon where you are in time. Now, this was, I, I love that we time stamped where you were in time because overnight successes during that period looked a lot different than they do now. Right. Just because, frankly, marketing and distribution channels were so much different, right, than they are now. But I'm providing commentary to your story. Um, well, but, but you said it turns is, out that. What you're saying is true, though, because I was told, um, I, I thought I was going to make a lot of money. Right. And to me, mm -hmm. if I'm making 45 grand, uh, I thought maybe I'll make like 150 grand. And that would be amazing. Um, and when I started to get into business and I started to figure some stuff out and I started to realize expenses, expenses cost money, right? Like, like just cause the company could make some money doesn't mean I take it home. Oh, that was a learning. I didn't even yeah. think, I didn't even think about expenses really. Uh, so I was very young. I was 23. I was very naive. I was very green, but I had a lot of energy and I just thought it would work out. And I thought like, quite frankly, I mean, this might sound silly, but just believing that it will work out was enough to get me started. And if I didn't believe that I wouldn't have started. Now, what I learned was from some other people is it takes seven years to earn serious money. And that felt mm -hmm. like a lifetime. I thought they were crazy because when you balance that out against the fact that most businesses don't even make it to year five, if most businesses don't make it to year five, but it takes seven years to actually get to a point where you can start to either pull money out of the company or make serious money, that sounds ridiculous to me. <laughs> but, but guess how long it took? Seven years. I was the lowest paid employee for the first seven years. So that's, 
without getting too nerdy on this one, right? The, what we're actually talking about here is a business model conversation, right? Um, and I say that because, for instance, me starting Productive Flourishing as a coach, um, it's it, it was where I was both the deliverer and the sales and sort of things. Like my path to a sustainable living was different because I was I didn't have to cut through a bunch of employees and things like that. Things are different now. Like. I wish that I got to keep as much as my company makes, but that's not the case, right? Um, but to unpack that a little bit, um, what was the kind of business that you did that led to some of the dynamics that led to you getting paid much later in the cycle of starting the business? Yeah, so I started my business like I think most people start businesses if you've never been an entrepreneur. Now, when you started, when I started, we weren't entrepreneurs. I was a business owner. I was a small business owner. <laughs> And so, um, like entrepreneurship or being an entrepreneur in my mind back in 2006, 2007 meant that you had like a $30 million company or you were Richard Branson or like, like, Mm -hmm. or you were, you know, some, like that was an entrepreneur, but I was a small business owner. So what did I have? I had a craft and, and most of us, especially today with freelancers and with all these other things, it's because we have a skill, we have a craft. I went to film school. I uh, got a job at, at, at a corporate company, at a franchise company, making videos. So when I started my business, we started as a video production company, a corporate video production company. And guess what? I made videos. So, hey, who needs a video? I'm a guy who makes videos. That that's literally was what I started with. And about five months in, having uh, not really sold anything having not really gone any of the directions I want, not really getting leads, not really having thought about marketing, um, not really getting anywhere and realizing that this like 20,000 or 25,000 or whatever it was dollars that I borrowed from my mom on her line of credit. Cause she just opened a line of credit up on our house and said, okay, Mark, this is what you have. And the little bit of money we had saved my wife and I, um, by May, five months in, I realized, Oh, I only have like three or four months left until I basically have to go get another job and call this quits. Like this is not going the way that I thought it was going to go. And it was because I started going like, I have a craft, right? If you're an accountant, you can go get people who need an accountant. If you're a website developer or designer, you can go people who need a website developer designer. I was a video guy who needs a video. Uh, and the path that led me to first figuring out, okay, I need to find people who need a video. That then led to, wait a minute, people don't actually hire me to make videos. They hire me to help them with something. Hmm, that's interesting. Because a year in, I suddenly realized, oh, if I'm working with a big company as an HR department, they they want the video for a different reason than if I'm working with a marketing department or a sales department or a CEO or a small business versus a pre-startup versus a huge company. Like I started realizing they all want this stuff for something for a different reason. Now, this is just sales 101, right? But but for me, it was groundbreaking and it was revolutionary. And it was like, oh, they all want it for a different reason. And I started to notice the reasons. And then I started to find, I started to look at which projects I enjoyed the most and which ones had the highest profit margins that I could deliver. Because like you, I sold, I shot, I edited, I did everything. For the first like two years, I did everything myself. And then when I started getting good and realizing, oh, if I'm in front of someone who's in HR, I'm going to just shift my message straight to what they want. Because through pattern recognition, I started noticing they all, they all have the same challenges. They all wanted the same things. And 
at a certain point, I, I, I realized that this was something that could work. Now, I don't know if you remember, but there was this thing in 2008, 2009 that happened, the Great Recession. Do you, do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. I started around that time. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, at that point, I'm, I'm like three years into my business. We're doing about $200,000 a year in revenue. Um, I'm still pretty much doing all the work myself. My wife and I just bought our first house. Uh, we had just had my second child. And this hits, right? January, no clients. All of my clients who are big corporate clients, because I went, quote unquote, go where the money is. I went where the money was. But guess what? Nobody in 2009 wanted a video because they all cut their budgets. February, not a single project. So I eat through all my cash. January, no work. February, no work. I go, I need to do something. Like we're two months in now. We have no money and I'm, I'm ready to throw it in. I'm ready to throw in the towel. I call my mom and I say, I don't know what I've just spent the last three years doing. Right? I have a portfolio that I'm frankly not proud of. I, uh, I don't have any clients who want to work with me right now. I have no money. And frankly, if I just kept working or worked for someone else, I would have been so much further along than I am now financially. And I feel like I've just wasted three years of my life. And she said, stop. Stop. It's not a big deal. Right? Like just you did it. Go do something else. It's okay. And I went, ah. but I'm always going to know that I'm going to look back on this moment and go, I gave up on that thing. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to give it one more kick at the can. And she says, what, well, what does that look like? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, I need help with sales. Go find someone who can help you sell them. So I go out and I borrow $50,000. Now keep in mind, we had just bought a house with a big mortgage. My wife's not working. We have two kids. My business has zero money in the bank. Um, we have zero clients, and I borrow $50,000 to hire a headhunter, to hire a salesperson, to try and help me figure this out. Hire a headhunter, hire a salesperson. He's with me six weeks, and he quits. Because guess what? In the meantime, his dream job came along that he didn't think was going to come along. He had this other offer waiting that he didn't tell me about. So now I've paid for the headhunter and I paid for someone six weeks of salary and I have nothing to show for it. And I'm even deeper in the hole. We find another salesperson and that is the moment that for me and for business and for like really that was like the lowest point where everything changed because I did a few things right. I found someone who believed in me. I found someone who wanted to help me figure out again, like my, my original time, like what do people want and why are they hiring us and who do we need to connect with? And they helped me rethink all of those things. And the third thing I did is I didn't pay myself for six months. I, did, I didn't pay myself for six months. I would take every paycheck, I would pay the taxes on those paychecks and I would slip them into my drawer and I wouldn't deposit it because I knew that, I knew that the business could not afford the salesperson and me. And every week my wife would say, are you going to pay us this week? And I go, no, I just, I, we just have to get by with what we have. And, and our savings are whittling down and we're taking on more debt and I'm not paying myself. But I, in those six months, we were able to figure out some sales. We were able to figure out some message. We were able to bring in a single client. We were able to generate some revenue and I was finally, and, and, and I, I used some debt and I moved some stuff around and it took me three years to pay off the debt of that $50,000 and the fact that I didn't pay myself. But that's what it took to kind of kickstart what became a multi-million dollar company for us. I love that. I'm going to 
sort of chart a story here because this is useful for a lot of our listeners who are creative giants because you've actually told two stories that have the same pattern, right? It's your college story was high tech, like you had high intelligence, high talent, high energy, and you reached the point in which you couldn't, that was not sufficient. There was a certain level of homework, know-how, dig in that chemistry required for you that you sort of slid away from, right? Um, and, and started a new career. But you, there's that same sort of story, but you made a different choice, right? You started the business, talent, high energy, high sort of passion about that. And you reached that dip point, what Seth Godin calls the dip point to where it's like, oh, that's turns out not enough, right? That's insufficient to go to this next level. And, and the reason I want to tell the story is because I, a lot of folks, a lot of us, a lot of our listeners have been on that. It's like, I didn't study. I made the A's. I can like Angela used to be so pissed at me because in algebra two in college, I had taken calculus and anyways, but I ended up taking algebra two. And so I would like sleep through the class and then wake up and like the teacher would try to stump me and she'd ask a question. I'd be like, bah, 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 here's what it is. And she, the teacher, the professor would be frustrated. My wife would be frustrated because I didn't have to study at a certain point, but I, I reached that point where it was like university physics, which was like the high level physics where I had to apply calculus and physics. I was like, I am not ready for this. <laughs> right. So I slid up out of that. Um, and so I think that's the, the story that I want to sort of architecture is there's just sort of two, two patterns of yourself, but in the second one, you made a different choice. You made a hard choice. Right. Um, and so, first off, congrats. And <laughs> well, like we talked funny, about yesterday. I, I, I look back, my daughter's, uh, my daughter's 16, and so she's a few years away from, from college, from university, whatever it is. And, if she struck, and, and I said, like, I tell the story, and I go, I don't know why I didn't ask for help. I don't know why I didn't get a tutor. I don't, I, do, I mean, I, I do know why, because, I, because I, I was wearing the persona of the whiz kid. I liked the fact that I was smart. I liked the fact I didn't have to study. I like the fact I didn't have to ask for help. And suddenly, but, but now that I'm older, I go, why the hell didn't I just get a tutor? Why didn't I get a coach? Why didn't I ask for help? I threw, I threw away this entire like dream career that in my head was how life was going to go because I didn't. And when I, I went out and got the money, the first time when I'm five months into business and you know, in, in 2000, when I'm five months into business and I'm facing bankruptcy, I got a business coach. Because I admitted to someone I'm struggling. And that was the hardest thing for me to do was to go like, hey, because I was telling everyone things are great, right? How are things going? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Amazing. Right? Like, yeah, I started. Yeah, I quit my job. Of course I quit my job. What? You quit your job and your wife's not working? Yeah, that's okay. And, and you have a three-month-old daughter now at home? No problem. It's, it's totally cool. Everything is awesome, everyone. Don't you know? Because I can't let my prospects or my clients or my friends know things aren't going well because why would they want to hire someone when things aren't going well? So I have to like put up this front, put up this front, put up this front. And then finally I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it was like, suddenly someone came in who cared, who wanted to help me, not for the money, but for more, no other reason than like, they kind of liked me and they wanted to help me. And, and suddenly I was like, Oh, apparently asking for help is one of the greatest things we could do. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag success packs on this one. I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about in the academy is the gift of not knowing, 
right? Because we have a lot of people who are like, I got to know everything. And I'm like, but when you accept the gift of not knowing, it opens up all these possibilities. Like you don't have to know, and it's okay that you don't know. You don't have to fight that, but then you can start to figure out like how in our language, I'm going to say who can help me, right? Who, not how, right? Who can help me do this or learn what I need to. And that's one of the gifts, right? The other gifts is that there's not one right way that something's supposed to unfold, right? And when you let go of those two things, you got to know everything and you got to know the right, the one right way to do this. If you're already high talent and have a perfectionist streak and all those type of whatnot, man, that will get you in such a deep hole. Um, and, you know, the other architect or the other part of the story that I want to draw out is um, there, are, there are a range of options, but there are two common options that we take in this scenario. One is we create because we well, we create such a stressful scenario that we have to rise to the challenge that it's kind of the burn the ships mentality, right? I, I know I'm going to do this thing and I have to figure it out because if I don't, it's van down by the river and that, that will make it happen. But there's this other route that you're alluding to here at the end is you can do that or you can ask for help before you get there. Um, and I want to sort of draw back the story because I'm glad you mentioned the timestamp of when you started because you're right. When we started, the icons of success, like they had no chinks in the armor, right? They were just this mythology of like the Richard Bransons and the, you know, Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs. They were just these larger than life people that had a curated story that we got through the media. Can and I tell so you, I picked, up they, Rich, I picked up Richard Branson's book because he used to be my, and I say used to be my favorite entrepreneur. At the time, he was my favorite entrepreneur. Um, and it was screw business as usual. And I, I picked it up, I think, a year or two after it came out. Um, I think it was written in 2008 or 2009. And by the time I read it, maybe 2011. Um, it was so already out of date. Like, he's talking about, like, the power of a personal brand. Why you need to be vulnerable. Why culture matters in a business. And I'm flipping through this in, like, 2010, 2011, going, like, this is revolutionary. What? You... But... If you go back to 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, pre-social media, pre-Twitter, pre-influencer, vulnerability was not something that was talked about, right? Simon Sinek with Start With Why. The reason why that was so revolutionary was because in corporate America, the idea of, of being purpose-driven, like the books that people were referencing at the time was E-Myth and Good, yep. to, Good to Great. Those were mm -hmm. the two things you had to read. And those were even like, mind-blowing we are in a totally different environment today i think better as long as we're not in information overload at least what you and i had when we started was we didn't have to read like you you have a million books behind you i have a million books as well we didn't have to try and stay on top of everything because there was only like read emeth and good to great like that's it get started <laughs> Well, I mean, for me, like when I started, because I had zero training in business when I started Productive Flourishing, like zero, zero. I fell ass backwards into this, right? Um, I didn't have the immersion lab that you had. I, I would just had, I had a certain set of skills <laughs> um, that people wanted to tap into and wanted to hire. And so I was like, oh, crap. Um, I knew enough to know that I had to learn the business of my craft, right? 
um, and not just learn, you know, the craft and get better at the craft. So I was like, well, if I'm in business doing this, it's the military and army, the army officer and the scholar. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this really, really well. So I went on, you know, a journey where I was reading 15 to 25 books a month, just because I'm like, what are all the things I got to know? <laughs> Let's get it. And so I spent two or three years doing that, right. And still unpacking a lot of that in books and things like that. But to your point, and, and, and it's funny being dinosaurs in a way in, in this sort of scenario, because it's, it's reminding those of us who were there at the time that like, as far as marketing channels goes, like RSS was like where most of it was going. Google Reader still existed. We were still in like the infancies of figuring out email marketing list, right? Um, and building your list. That's like back in like AWeber was like pretty much the only option, right? It's no social media. Right. So no fractured messages, no 18 audiences all talking at you and asking different sort of things. And mostly at the time, especially for on the blogger sort of thought leader side, like you were talking to each other. Like I would write Mark, I would write a post and send it to Mark. Right. I knew he was on the email list. I think <laughs> I knew he, he, he was probably reading, but I was like, I wrote a thing. And then like that would go back and forth. Like that was the, that's what we're talking about there. It was harder from the technical point of view. Because there wasn't a course on everything and it was like you had to figure out how to build websites and things like that. But you're absolutely right on the information overload side of things. Way easier, right? Way easier. And also, I'm just going to be honest about this. Way easier to get a foothold in the market, right? If you can figure that out, there just wasn't as much competition and it didn't feel like everybody was saying the same thing. And so, like, if you if you figure out what we now call product market fit, you can get some lift a lot easier because it wasn't 18 other people saying the same thing see, at different rates. See, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, I think the tried and true methods still work. So what I, learned, do. what I learned at the internet marketing franchise back in 2004, 2005, whatever it was, um, a few things. One, I learned about segmentation, which was something that I never really realized. I learned we were already doing A-B testing at the time. The idea of like, hey, testing two different messages and seeing which one converts better. Uh, we were already looking at landing pages. Hey, the you know you want to be able to tie someone's search to where you take them to because at the time everyone was just driving everyone to a homepage, right? Mm -hmm. um, we we at the, already we were looking at at inbound pages, which pages are bringing people in with which messages, and so part of when I started my video company and I said, hey, I realized people didn't want to, they were hiring me for a video, but not really an outcome was because I, I had already spent a year and a half or two years immersed in this world where at the time, I remember the first time I heard of pay-per-click, which was Google ads. And someone said, did you know for 12 cents you could generate a lead? And, and that's what it used to cost, right? The reason Amazon mm -hmm. grew so quickly is because they dumped, I don't know, a gazillion dollars into ads. But um, when I started, and these are the things that still work today, and, and they still work today, and it's what we use to turn into a million-dollar business, to generate our first million in a year. Uh, we used pay-per-click and we used SEO. Now, the reason why I say they still work today is maybe pay-per-click's too expensive for you, which is AdWords or, or Google Ads. Um, maybe Facebook isn't, marketing isn't working or, or IG marketing isn't working and all this stuff. But, but here's what still works. What you want to do is you want to figure out what is your path in front of your prospect. So mm -hmm. what path will get your message in front of the people you want to speak to? Now, how do you do that in a way that looks better or feels better or is more trustworthy than the other people in your market? And then when you get them to your page, 
How do you give them a page or an experience that looks better, that sounds better, that has more trust than anyone else? And then when they reach out to you, how do you make sure that your message when they reach out to you is better than everyone else? And then when you give them an experience or close that deal, how do you continue to do that better than anyone else? And back in 2004 and five, we were doing that. How is my Google ad better than the competitors mm -hmm. so it's higher? And then we're on the landing page. How is my message better than the competitors so they'll give me a lead? And when I get the inbound call or the inbound lead or the meeting or the whatever it is, how do I do that better than everyone else? And if you just approach your marketing, your lead generation, your sales, I mean, this is what we do as an agency today. We help people figure this out. But if you just do it at every single step and are, people think you have to be 100% better, you just, you just got to be slightly better or the same as, as your competition to, to garner, to get the call, to get the lead, to get whatever it is. But ideally you're better, but you only have to be a tiny bit better. Just yeah, a tiny I love bit that. better. We are absolutely aligned on that. There's a reason why we, we're still reading Breakthrough Advertising by Eugene Schwartz, and you can't get a copy of it right now. I don't know why they don't print more of this. But anyways, because the fundamentals, the principles always work. Like marketing hasn't really – the principles of marketing and sales, I don't know that they've really changed since 2,000 years ago. <laughs> We've just gotten better, better at implementing those principles, right? Um where I would say things are different is that key point, like better than everyone else, right? The the people doing it, that pool was smaller and they weren't executing as well, right? Um, and so it's absolutely those things work. And what's funny about it is, and Mark, someone was talking to me about books a few weeks, a few weeks ago. And they're like, yeah, books are dead. Like, you know, no one really reads them and they're, they're not effective. And, um, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, your experience with this and a lot of other business authors' experience is dramatically different, right? And when it comes to that, um, but what I'm getting to is that there are just some of these forms of either marketing or giving information or doing that that just do a lot of lifting. But what I what I pivoted to him, and it was sort of tongue in cheek, and, and I don't do that sometimes. It's like, well, I really hope more people think that way. Because it continues to make writing a book even better of a thing to do <laughs> because it's the hard work that a lot of folks don't do, right? So it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, like, yeah, no, that's not really the case. And um, if you get better at the fundamentals that work because people are spreading themselves so thin and trying so many different things, not knowing those fundamentals, you can win just being 10% better over time than, you know, than your market. Yeah, you, you've touched on a few points. So first of all, there's always room at the top for best for, for, for the best. There's mm -hmm. always room um, in the marketplace for something slightly different. And mm -hmm. and every channel is competitive, but every channel has always been competitive. So when I talked about the early days about pay-per-click and SEO and whatnot, um, it's not like other companies didn't exist in my market. It's not like other companies mm -hmm. weren't limited to the same options that I was limited to. They were, and we were all limited to the same things. And today... We will look back on today, 20 years from now, and go, remember when business was so much easier? Like, remember yep. when you could write a book and people would buy it or whatever it is? It's just like we have this weird nostalgia about the, about the simplicity of the past. But, but the truth is it's like we're all limited by the same number of tools, and you're only competing for people's uh, – this is, this is where the faulty thinking is with, your, with the person who says books don't work. Books don't work depending on the objective you're trying to hang on that book. 
right? right? If, you have, if, you, if you apply a single objective to a single audience or a single message to every tactic you do, it will work. Or, or it won't and you can cut it. And that's, and that's totally cool. But it will work. Mm -hmm. The problem is people want to go and spend the time to write a book and hope it will be an awareness tool. Right. We used to do yeah, a no. lot of Kickstarter programs. We used to do a lot of Kickstarter programs with people. And it was interesting because they would always come to me with the same challenge. They would say, we're running a Kickstarter campaign. Fantastic. How are you going to get people, people's attention? How are you going to break through? How are you going to get people to the page? Why would they care? And they go, no, 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 we're, Mark, Mark, we're doing a Kickstarter campaign. And I go, I know. But do you think a Kickstarter campaign is going to make people care? Do you think that's going to get you to the, to the homepage of Kickstarter? No, 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 no. And they go, well, look at all these other people. And I go, let's break this down. Let's break this down. To, to launch in the day a successful Kickstarter campaign, one, you need an amazing product. You have to already know your market fit. You can't be testing it. You have to know exactly what you're asking for. But here's what every Kickstarter campaign does. First, they focus on PR. The Kickstarter campaign will not bring you attention, but other attention activities will bring people to the Kickstarter campaign. Second, you need a very clear ask and a very clear message and a reason why you're different which means you need to spend time on story, your story on the page, what are you offering and why it's different. And then the third thing you need is amazing community management. Because guess what mm -hmm. most people do? Most people bail halfway through or they run into PR issues or their finances aren't lined up. And so I said, if you don't have all three of those things, an actual PR campaign or awareness campaign or advertising campaign and budget to get people to notice your campaign, and then you don't have an amazing story once they're there, and then afterwards, you don't have community management, you will not succeed. And then I challenge them to say, now, what's the difference between launching a Kickstarter campaign with how much time and energy and money this is going to cost and just starting your business? Right? Your most, most successful Kickstarter campaigns at the time were spending more money than the money that they would be bringing in. So why mm -hmm. not just go start your business? Like, why not just start? And, and so we fall into this trap but but for all of us who are launching new products or new services or a new company or we're going into new markets, we have to realize that that a lot of these tactics that used to be awareness tools, does, does Facebook and Instagram advertising still work? Most people will say no. The truth is it does. It does still work. But you can't use it like it's 2017 to buy cheap awareness. But if you have your funnel set up properly, it can be a really effective retargeting tool. So LinkedIn for B2B businesses used to be far too expensive for retargeting, but it could work for awareness. So you would do an awareness campaign on LinkedIn, and then you would do retargeting on Facebook and, and, and Instagram because it was much more cheap. And then overall through your entire life cycle, you'd be able to right size and get an ROI on that, on that deal. If we just attributed to everything we did in sales and marketing and business, a single objective to a single audience for a single purpose, it will give us so much more clarity as to whether this will help us or not. So I would argue Precisely. that writing a book is the most amazing thing you can do if it's a credibility piece or if it's um, maybe a, 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 recurring, a recurring piece that you can do for recurring clients to get them re-engaged with you. Or you could take all of your social content and turn it into a book to become a speaker because the speak, speaking engagements will give you some revenue, but will actually give you social content and the social content will help grow your following and the growing your following will lead to more business, right? Like these are the things we need to do to stitch together a plan. But most people just want to go like, should I be on TikTok? Yeah. Love. Thanks for breaking that down. Um, 
clearly we have other conversations we can have on, on that <laughs> on that piece. Mark. Well, but it, it's again um, so much of the work we do here at Productive Flourishing, whether you're talking about you know teams and strategy or just individuals with the projects that they're finishing, it's like give that job or give that project a really clear job. And when you give it a clear job, besides making you happy and being cool and being what everybody else does, right, then you can more adequately address whether it's done its job or not. Um, but when you give it a clear job, you also get into a partnership. It sounds weird, but you get into a partnership with that project because you then you know what job you need to do, right? Um, it has a job. You have a job. But if you haven't defined either one of those and you just get into this random lurking and grazing on the Internet and throwing a bunch of stuff up and you know then you fall into the lagging indicator trap because like you do a bunch of things and you really overinvest in a place and you're like oh it that works so i'm going to keep doing that well what you're tracking is your level of investment in there right if you invest 80 percent of your effort somewhere and you get 20 percent of the return on that maybe that's not working right um maybe you know so it's just I think there's a lot where we need to step back on, on sort of the business side and be like, okay, what are the jobs that are being done here? What's the best way to arrange these? How do I partner with them? Back to your point, I don't need to do all the jobs for this project. Other people can do some of the jobs if I ask for help and realize I don't have to do all the jobs, right? Um, and so sort of pulling back into your story a little bit. So you grow your multi-million dollar company. Um, what happens next? <laughs> which, I mean, every two or three years, there was a shift. So which, which beat, which beat are you alluding to here? Well, you have this interesting pivot to, and I learned about this yesterday where you had all of that going on, but you've made a video, you made a pivot to video casting and podcasting. And there's an interesting, um, either break yeah. or addition yeah. to what you were doing to create Mark as we see and hear Mark today. Yeah. So so um, what allowed us to be successful and build a multi-million dollar company were, were two things. One, um, I invested in team, right? I, I always wanted to do work that was better than I could do alone. And I wanted to do work that I was proud of. And frankly, I wasn't very proud of what I could, was capable of. So I was like, oh, if I just hire amazing people who are better than me, suddenly now my company could do amazing things that I wasn't capable of. And so um, that was first. Uh, and the second thing that really helped us is pretty early on, I realized that I'm responsible for outcome. And mm -hmm. if I'm responsible for outcome, that, then I'm responsible for giving recommendations. And so the reason why I'm a, I, I really am a brand strategist, and often people will say like, how did you become a brand strategist? Like I, I went to film school, like I made, I made videos, right? But what the switch was, was when people started coming to us in a world where you can do anything, what's the right thing to do? When you can say anything, what do you say? When you can shoot anything for any budget, what's the appropriate amount of budget to spend so you're not overspending or underspending? Like, as soon as I started taking responsibility for answering all of that questions for my prospects, sales took off. Because what I went from is I went from being the order taker who's like, you want a video? I can make a video for you. How much budget do you have? What, what do you want? To me going like... No, 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 no. In this situation, this is what you need. And I started diagnosing things for people. And that's when I became a brand strategist. And that's when our creative took off. And that's when our strategy took off. And that's when sales took off and everything. When I took responsibility for the outcome, which let me tell you, the reason I'm mentioning this right now is four or five or six years later of taking responsibility for the outcome where we're producing hundreds of projects per year, 
Uh, we're, I'm in rooms that frankly uh, are giving me anxiety because we're working on projects worth hundreds of thousands of dollars with huge international brands. And I'm facing, I'm feeling uh, a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, I never worked for another agency. I, I was 23 when I started my company. I didn't even really work for many corporate companies. So I'm working with these huge organizations on these massive budgets where I would get into a room and I would lead them through strategy because I was good at that. And then at a certain point, I'd have eight or 10 or 12 C-suite executives all look at me and go, Mark, what should we do? And I was the dude who had to go like, this is what we should do. And here's why we should do it. And here's how I know it'll work. And I believed it. And I knew I was good at it. And they all loved it. At a certain point, that wasn't enough for me because I wanted the work to really work. Like I got, I started getting depressed because I realized that the work I was doing for these huge companies did not affect the bottom line, did not, like people didn't, the audiences didn't really care, right? Like no one in the public was like, I can't wait for another commercial from an insurance company, right? Like, like no one was asking for that stuff. And so I wanted it to be more effective, more effective, more effective, more performance-based. And so I started taking on even more responsibility. And then this really happened. I realized our stuff doesn't work. All of the mm. stuff that I believed, because when you move from being a creative agency where someone pays you to make stuff that looks pretty and makes them feel good, to being a performance-based agency where the stuff we worked and we would actually put into market was responsible for delivering our ROI and we could see the conversion rate, the retention rate. We could see which, people, which things people were clicking on. We were doing what most people won't do, which is we were taking on so much responsibility that suddenly I had this moment where I realized like, this stuff doesn't work. I thought it would work. I believed it would work. All of my peers say it works. All of the other agencies says it works. All of the clients are happy enough that it works. This stuff doesn't work. And, you know, so so I'm running a multi-million dollar company. Uh, I, I have all of this responsibility. I'm getting extremely burnt out. And I'm carrying all, I'm just carrying all of this weight. And I realized, like, I just don't want to do this anymore. And so part of what happened, I mean, this is right around when COVID hit as well. But... I had spent like close to 15 years building this thing and I had a team and I have a wife and I have a mortgage and I have kids and now my lifestyle is attached to, to being a, to running, a, you know, a, a company that makes a few million dollars um, and, in terms of revenue and, and pe people all see me that way. And it's like, so I'm podcasting with my friend, Evan Carmichael, we had a podcast together, something to prove. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and if you go back and actually just watch those episodes, they're all on YouTube. They're all up somewhere. Literally, it's just like him yelling at me week after week after week as I'm struggling through this stuff in real time <laughs> because I'm super vulnerable. And my team is watching yeah. it and they're going, Mark, you shouldn't be saying this stuff. And I'm going like, oh, this is upsetting me and I'm not sure what to do here. And like, I, I'm like literally working through it in real time. I haven't watched it back because I think it would just be too painful for me. But I'm super open. I'm super vulnerable. And I explain all that stuff. But at a certain point, I realized that what you and I are doing right now I, I look forward to, I love, it lights me up. I, I become a bolder version of me. I have a stronger network. I believe more. And then I would go, like take my headphones off because the podcast episode would be done. And I would get to work. And I was like, hmm, hmm something's hmm. not right here. Something's not right. Why me and you and all of us entrepreneurs, why are we spending 90, 95% of our time doing the stuff we don't want to do so we can spend 5% of the time doing the stuff we love to do or is our zone of genius when we started these companies to spend our time doing the things we love. But, but it took me like six months to finally, for things to become painful enough or for me finally to get the, the courage, frankly, 
to say, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And that, that, that was like spring of 2021. So maybe it took even longer. Maybe it took me a year. Spring of 2021, I said, I just cannot run this agency or this business anymore with these. I just can't do it. I just can't. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, if you want to hear another episode of uh, Mark being vulnerable, but hopefully not getting yelled at, <laughs> um, I think our episode, we'll put it in the show notes as soon as it published because we had a similar conversation yesterday. And what I wanted to tie into is you mentioned a book sort of in passing, the E-Myth, right? I'm not going to over over whip this horse, right? Um, and I need to go back and read it to make sure he doesn't say this. But there's a fundamental premise about business in the E-Myth that we, for the longest time, did not question. And so the E-Myth, if you haven't read the book, is really about growing like the, the setup is you're you're in a pie shop or, you know, you're, you're, you start baking a pie shop. And then like if you really want to be a successful business owner – if you really want to be an entrepreneur, you get yourself out of baking pies. You stop doing that. You hire a manager. You build a franchise. You build this whole structure around it. And when I read it then, and it still sticks with me, I'm like, I got to the end of it. And I was like, but what if I really want to make the pies though? Right? What if the pie is my jam? Right? Does that mean I'm not a successful entrepreneur? Does that mean I'm not a successful business person? Um, and so early in my days, I had a lot of worry about that. And, you know, it didn't take me too long to figure out, oh, that is his definition of success in entrepreneurship and how this has to work, which is fine. And it works, right? If that's, if you're, if you want to be a Chick-fil-A franchisee king and just get a bunch of those things going, great. Don't make chicken sandwiches, Right. But, you know, like I was season with you yesterday, Mark, like I live in Portland, so we could say a bunch of weird things. But like, if you really, really just want to make those chicken sandwiches, maybe a food truck is the right choice for you, right? You get to make them chicken sandwiches and do that all day and see customers delighted by it and do all that kind of whatnot. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Are you a real business person? Are you like, let's get out of those conversations because there are enough people who are quote unquote successful in quote business owners whose life sucks, whose finances suck, who wake up in the morning dreading what they need have to do ahead of them. If that's success, uh, count me out, bro. Yeah. You know, you've, you've touched on something. People have always asked me, like, I did a video with Evan maybe in 2014 or 15, how to build a million dollar uh, video production company. Um, and it, and it, it, it still gets views. It's weird that like all these years later, but that's how YouTube works. Um, but I, I hit on something because people would always come up to me and say, I want to do what you want to do. And the first thing that I ask is, what kind of business do you want? Like, like I was in video. I went to film school to become an editor. And then I realized I was really good at producing. And then I started pursuing that path. But if you are a pie shop owner and you love making pies, or a chicken salad person who loves making chicken salad, or you're a videographer who loves being behind the lens and being behind the camera and working with people, like, you, you got to recognize that and realize that. I hated it. I hated being on set. I still don't like being on set. Um, I, I just, I don't like, I didn't like, and I don't like most of the production process. So I could not wait to get out of it. But guess what I did love? I love talking to people and I love figuring out what they need and I love their problem solving. And I, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of quoting and scoping, but I'm really good at it. And I can figure out a work back schedule and all that stuff. So I naturally went that direction mostly because I hated making the thing. I didn't want to make the thing. 
I wanted to be the person who was like getting out of all of that stuff. So I would tell people, if you want a business like mine, cool, follow my path. But if you love your craft and your skill, you will hate what I do. You know, I had, I, I always envisioned like $30 million, $30 million, $30 million. Like that's the revenue I need to hit. I need 70 to 100 staff. And at a certain point, I was like, wait a minute, what would a CEO of a $30 million company with 70 to 100 people staff do? And I realized it's like, oh, a lot of financials. Well, I don't like financials. And like just, just like a lot of people management, system management running at scale. And I was like, oh, I realized like I'm really a startup guy though. Like I love inventing things and making things. And and so so every business, it requires sales. It requires someone who can actually do the work. And then it requires all of the like finance and operations and team and recruitment and all that team stuff. Like you need those three things. But if you are the delivery person behind the camera making the pie or whatever, you better get someone who can figure out sales and marketing and you better get someone who can handle SOPs, uh, which is what eMyth is really about. It's, it's really mm -hmm. about like, hey, just make sure that you build employee manuals so employees are replaceable. Hey, just make sure that you actually systematize things enough so people, so if someone quits, you can actually just hand it to the next person and you can train them and you can recruit people. And all those operational things that I frankly hate um, are important. But, but just decide if you're great at the operations or the integrator in today's language, awesome. Who's the person who's actually doing the work or delivering and who's the salesperson or whatnot? If you're great at sales, which is what I love, then who is the other person? Like you just need those three capabilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting because, you know, when we, we as entrepreneurs or we as all people, but, you know, we don't realize sometimes when we get into the book, the underlying assumptions in those books. And so we might read the book for the systems and ops manual, but sort of have the write along of, oh, that's what business is. And this is why, like, if you over, if you overread like Fast Company and Inc. and Entrepreneur, you might think that you're just reading about tactics and methods. You're getting far more than that, right? Um, you're getting far, far more than that. And sometimes we just don't realize those underlying assumptions about what it means to be in business and what success looks like, so on and so forth, are part of the package, even if we're not paying attention to them. And I think that's where a lot of the imposter syndrome and comparisitis and sort of come from because you're like, well, I'm not successful. Well, who? it's just the last 20 magazines that you read showed profiles of successful entrepreneurs that had $30 million companies. And then you're here at, you know, three to 4 million. Like, who am I? I'm not them. That's what success is. I'm not there. I'm a failure. Might as well be at Van Down by the River. Right. Sort of scenario. And so I just want to be clear about that. We have to be careful about the assumptions and paradigms that we take on as we're getting tactics and methods. And I've only learned this in the last few years. There's a whole school of business that I've never really applied to or even hung out in these circles of that, that treat businesses as an asset. Right. So there's the M&A crowd and the scale up crowd and the exit crowd where you can go ahead and like acquire these businesses and then roll them together and then rebrand them and then exit them. Those are entrepreneurs just like I'm an entrepreneur, but I realize like, oh, I'm really a creative entrepreneur because because I, I've never really treated my business as as much of an asset as it actually is. Uh, and so I've actually worked to try and treat it more like an asset with a slightly less emotional connection to it and, and all of those other things. But we may be reading books. Emith is really about, about asset creation, like how to take this thing mm -hmm. that you have market fit for, 
turn it into an asset that can operate without you. So that way you can scale it up or you can exit. And uh, there's all these passive income streams and there's real estate investing and there's all these other things that treat assets like assets. But a small business can be an asset without without you in the. I told my wife that I feel like I was thinking about like restaurants at some point. She's like, you don't want to work in a restaurant. And I was like, I don't have to work in the restaurant just because I own the restaurant doesn't mean I have to work in it. And she's like, but you'd hate that. And I was like, but it's an asset. And and so that's the other thing that when we're just getting into this and it took me years to figure out is there's this whole school of people who just treat businesses as assets and less as like this persona thing that they're wearing all the time. Yeah. Well, and what's great about understanding that paradigm is it goes back to the job of your business. If you have, if you think about it that way and you're primary investing in an asset that you're going to do, your job becomes different. That's what, that's what Gerber is talking about. Like your job becomes different if, you know, and you know, we productive flourishing is weird in this moment because we have the broader brand that people um, know and are used to, but then we also have momentum, which is a software as a service company and product, very different sort of aims for that, right? Very different ways it works. It has a different job and means we and the team need to have different jobs when it comes into respect that that's different than the jobs that we might have with productive flourishing. And so even as you start designing your business, like you can think revenue streams, this revenue stream has a certain job. So I know you have a YouTube channel that like it has all sorts of different jobs and it's a different type of asset that may be different than some advising that you may do or other things like that. And it's just getting that clarity because if you don't get that clarity, you get emotionally entangled in ways that become difficult over time. I agree. <laughs> so the hard thing so going to your current focus, the hard thing for you at that time was letting the multi-million dollar, I almost said the ego business go, right? Um, but that's not what you said on that front, but letting sort of that multi-million dollar business was, go so that you can do, do what? That's what it was though, 100%. I, I was doing something for years that I didn't want to do. Yeah. To do this sort of passion or interest or craft or wonder like business that, that you're doing now. Um, what was, if you can remember, what was the single hardest moment or decision in that process? By, by far, uh, it was deciding that I wanted to shut Phantom Media, the agency I own down. And um, it took me a really long time. Part of, so I launched We Do Hard Things, the podcast where I connect with, with people who do hard things. Now, what does that mean? Maybe it means to you that you're like Goggins, right? And you're just going to be badass and just go out there and like do hard things. To me, it's about courage. To me, it's about conviction. It's about, um, it's about pursuing your passions. It's about being your true self and not fearing judgment and making hard decisions and having hard conversations. All of that higher level stuff, all of that who you need to be stuff. And so I was doing it and connecting with these amazing people. And like I said, I'd be like, jump on a podcast and an interview. And I'd be like, I love it. I love it. I love it. And then I would go off to work. Um, and it wasn't the clients or their fault. And it wasn't my team or their fault. And it wasn't, it wasn't anyone's fault other than I just kept doing the next smart thing, the next smart thing, the next smart thing. My business requires this and then this and then this without really ever asking myself, like, what if I get there and I just don't like it? And what if more and more and more, bigger, more revenue, more team, more and more and more and more isn't something that's like that I want. 
right? Because ultimately it took me further and further away from the original reasons I started the business and the things that I loved. And it took me away from inventing and creating and, and all of that stuff where I said, like, I'm the guy who likes to make stuff. I wasn't making things. I was just like maintaining things. And so um, the hardest decision by far was after, so in 2016, 17, we started to pivot the agency because along the way, video wasn't enough. And so we had already become a video-centric agency. We were already doing television commercials and radio commercials and huge things. Uh, we became more, we started taking on this performance-based marketing. Uh, so we started taking on more responsibility. And after like two or three years of hiring teams and the teams letting, quitting and hiring teams and letting them go and not being able to crack the nut of actually finding market fit, as you said, where we could not find people, like we made big promises and we could not deliver on those promises. And after two or three years of not being able to do it, um, I, I had to, I had to finally, I, I went for a walk with my wife one day and I had a guest on my podcast. And at the end of the conversation, I just said, like, I'm afraid to like, let go of this thing. And he's like, just let it go. Just let it go. And it's like, but this is what I've been working for. And this is what I've been doing. So I went for a walk with my wife and I said, if I'm not running Fanta or agency owner, who am I? And what am I doing? Like, I'm a podcaster. Like that feels so insignificant. Like, like, frankly, I love being a podcaster and I'm sure you love podcasting as well, but like, it just doesn't seem like enough. And so, and so I was like, but I can't do this anymore. And as soon as I finally decided, like, I am going to shut my agency down. Now I didn't in the long run, but in that moment I decided I'm going to shut my agency down. I have to, I have to let some people go. I have to fire some clients. I have to have some hard conversations. I have to talk to my COO, my integrator, who was along for the ride with me. All these people were like, let's go, let's go. The promised land is coming. Hurrah. And then suddenly I'm like, I'm out, guys. Uh, I, it, it, but you know what happened? Just like when I asked for help early on, when I finally revealed how, frankly, desperately unhappy I was, and the fact that I was having regular panic attacks and that anxiety was terrible and that I just wasn't happy and that things weren't working and that I was kind of like keeping a facade up. As soon as I started talking to people about it, um, within a few seconds of every conversation when I said, I have to talk to you and, and people would know like, oh, this is serious. And I go, listen, um, this is what's going on and this is what's happening and this is the decision. I'm feeling so uncomfortable talking about this next, putting me back in the moment, but this is what's happened. Everyone would go, Every single person, client, uh, team member, everyone went, Mark, are you okay? And I went, no, no, you, you, you're trying, what I'm trying to explain to you is this is, the, this is what's happening with the business and this is what's going to happen and I'm going to make sure that I offset you. I'm going to hand you this out. And they go, no, no, but Mark, that's just business. Are you okay? And I was like so confused. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure, I mean, no one said anything to me, but I'm sure I upset some people and let some people down. And probably people think that maybe I'm super flaky or um, that I made big promises and I never lived up to it. But that was the hardest moment, it was just deciding that I'm gonna let this all go. But at the same time, I was like, oh, freedom. Freedom for what's potentially next. And then it, it took me six months of struggling with this to figure out if I even have energy, even if I have capacity. I remember Evan like trying to pitch me business ideas and I just said, I don't want to take on anyone else's responsibilities right now. Like I don't have any space 
to jump into the next thing, to take on more responsibilities, to make promises to people. I, and here's the thing with running an agency that no one talks about. I, I had to build my team and my business, but I spent all day every day building other people's teams and businesses. So it's not like this is an ADHD, uh, uh, like this is the perfect world for ADHD people like me. Because, because if I'm working on 30 different projects for 30 different clients, then I'm in different industries with different projects, with different needs, with different requirements. But often at the end of the day, I had no energy for my own business. And I certainly had no energy for anyone else. And so mm-hmm. for, for that six months, I went, I just want to build my own thing, my thing, my thing for me. And, yeah. and that was We Do Hard Things. That was the podcast. That was a great thing. It was a, it was a great distraction almost. And then I was like, oh, I don't have to throw my agency away. Oh, even though I was kind of just really burnt out, I could pivot it. I could pick new clients. I could go back to my roots. I could go back to the core things that I love best. I could shed all of this other crap. I don't have to build a, a 60 person or 70 person, $30 million team. It can't like suddenly I realized I could do anything. <laughs> I love it. I love that journey for so many different reasons. We talked a little bit about this yesterday during our podcast, right? About why we don't do our best work is the question you asked. And in that conversation, um, what I mentioned is that um, doing our best work requires us to center ourselves and our dreams and our passions and our sparks and things like that in a way that is uncomfortable for all of us. Um, but it's especially uncomfortable for some of us who are so relationally driven and to get positive feedback from all that sort of dads and just have that sort of side. It's a really, really hard thing to do, which is why we don't do it, right? It's, it's easier to do the work other people want you to do, that you're good at, that you get paid well for, than to be a podcaster, or a blogger or a writer or a coach or whatever that thing that you secretly love doing right and want to get to we we, we do this whole you remember rube goldberg from those those pictures from yeah school. we, like, we do physics. all I these machinations <laughs> all these sort of complicated machinations to get to some simple outcome and at a certain point you just realize or i could just do that thing and do that really, really well, because that's the gift we have. We talked sort of about all the things you can do. At a certain point, the hard thing is picking a craft and the business that goes along with it that you really want to master and sticking to it. That's one of the hard things, because it's not just the the technical stuff you got to learn, but it's like yoking yourself to this thing and then reprioritizing it when it gets hard and so on and so forth. So Thanks so much for sort of showing that journey back to Mark, actually, right? Well, and, and here's one thing that in that six months and then in the, in the frankly, the year since then, this is a few things. One, I thought I wasted all of those years, right? Like I built something and then I, and, and if you don't mind me saying like, and then I pissed it all away, right? I had something and then I lost it. I let it slip away. I let it get away from me. I didn't make smart choices. I didn't make whatever it is. I felt like a failure for a really long time. Um, and what I, what I came around to was I realized that, oh, if I actually look back through my journey, every experience serves me today. Like, like me wanting to be a, an engineer and an architect and creating spaces, honestly, it's, it's the same thinking or underlying process or approach or whatever I, I, I created for my marketing campaigns. And when I'm hosting live events 
or when I'm when I'm structuring certain things. And my love for um, for podcasting early on, because this is my third podcast, we do hard things. Uh, you know what? Frankly, I realized that all the years that I spent working one on one in 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 group sessions to try and figure out what people wanted, and hosting those strategy sessions, and then and then pitching people creative and explaining things made me a better storyteller. And so going back, I realized, oh, this all served me. Wherever I'm going next, I'm bringing this with me. And that, that you, you mentioned earlier, there's no right way. This is it. Like, like I said to my wife about six months ago, what we are doing right now is life. This, what's ha what you and I are doing right now, this is it. This is life. And if I don't like this moment, if I don't like what we're doing, if I don't like how I look, if I don't like how I feel, if I don't look at how I'm spending my time, I always lived in this like, one day I will. Like life is in the future. Like right now it's temporary. And that's good for an entrepreneur because the marshmallow test, if I can sacrifice today for a better tomorrow, that will serve me. But at the same time, if you sacrifice today and you sacrifice tomorrow and you sacrifice the next day and five years and then 10 years and then 15 years and then 20 years go by and you keep sacrificing, at what point will it serve you as opposed to just going like, this, this is all there is. And tomorrow there will be another one of this is all there is. And the day after that, there will be another one of this is all there is. But, but life isn't five years from now. Life is right now. And if I don't like it, I have the power to change it. You only get one concert with your daughter in Atlanta, you know. <laughs> oh, and for our listeners, if you don't know what we're talking about, you're going to have to go listen to the Charlie on We Do Hard Things. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, for what it's worth, had I known you at the time of all that, when like you needed to step away, I would have not been like, here's a bunch of business ideas. I would have been like, Mark, you need a, you need a sabbatical is really what you need. You've had seven years of this. You need some space. You created that for 14 yourself. 14 years but, in business at that point. 14 years, right? And so if you identify with sort of Mark's story and you're like, you need to let go, but you're not sure what's next, maybe you don't have to figure that out for six to nine months. Maybe you can do a fun project that creates enough space and distance for you to really observe what's going on. And if that doesn't do, I mean, that's, that's why people will choose to do it. Why it will actually feed people is because if you do it, you can actually reconnect with what really, truly matters to you and sparks you and lights you up and brings joy and wonder and excitement in your life. So many of us are so hard driven that we won't choose a sabbatical for those reasons, right? So I give you the productive reason, but also there's this real reason, you know, and start finishing. I pose two questions because you, you mentioned the smart choices, right? You were making all the smart choices. And so when I was talking about courage as part of the keys to doing your best work, sort of pose two questions. And one question was like, consider a project that's important to you right now. Okay. And think about what you need to do next. So question one, what's the smartest thing you can do next? And then question two, What's the most courageous next step you can take on that project? And I pose that question often because the smart one gets us in our head and there's all these sort of things and we're not sure and so on and so forth. But usually when we really center into that project of what's the most courageous next step, people typically have one, maybe two answers to that. And they know it really, really instantly. 
Um, and so I'm with you. Like when I talk about courage, I don't capitalize capital capital C running in the fire, saving babies courage. It's little C courage moments to where you look at your life and you look at your work and you say, you know what? What's the most courageous next step? And then you take it. So I'm curious with what you're doing right now, Mark, what's the most courageous next step that you can take with your work? Um, oh gosh, that feels like a heavy question because I'm still in this transition. Um, do you guys do editing? Do you guys do editing in post? Yeah, we do editing. Okay. Can I can I hit you with something? Can I hit you with something else real quick, just based off what yeah. you just said? Okay. Um, so you were talking about courage, and you just reminded me of a moment that has always stuck with me. So my friend Evan Carmichael, I was over at his house, and it was one afternoon. And as I walked in, I was having a terrible day during this transition. I was having a terrible day. And he said, what's, he's like, what's wrong? And I just said, you know, if I were really bold and he goes, stop. I go, no, hold on. And he goes, I don't want to hear it. And I'm like, no, Evan, if I were really bold, stop. He's like, I don't want to hear it, Mark, because if you were really bold, you would just do it. And I know instead what you're going to do is you're going to tell me all the things you would do if you're bold and you're not going to do any of them. And what I was going to say to him was if I was really bold, I would restructure my team or maybe let my team go. I would close down my agency. I wouldn't work with these clients. I would just, and this was like in 2019, this is like a year or two before all of that other stuff. And he wouldn't listen to me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give me like, he wouldn't even give me space because he was so angry and so impatient and so bothered by the fact that I'm bringing him this stuff where he's like, Mark, you already have the answers. Right. The, okay. To your point, like courage, like you already know it. I just didn't see a way out or path for like, except for like just burning everything to the ground. But I realized two years later, I didn't have to burn everything to the ground, but I had to let go of it. Mm. And if I let go, if let I go. let go of it, it gave me freedom to make bold choices or courageous choices or other things. I didn't have to burn it all to the ground. I kind of did. But if I just emotionally let go of it, I could make better choices. Yeah. Well, since I'm guessing that you don't want that to be public. Um, what I just said? About Evan Carmichael yeah. not being not – you do want it to be public or you don't want it to be public? No, it could be public. Okay. Why, why, um, why wouldn't it be public? Um, well, I'll say what I'm going to say and then we can decide. Okay, cool. Um, my experience of you thus far is you're a social processor. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so by, say, and so by saying, I don't want to hear it, he didn't give you the space to even let that be a possibility. And so there was, there was that moment, and I would just say as a coach on that one, is like, actually, like, let – create space for that. <laughs> because, I mean, not to sell my service or anything like that, but because I would have been like, okay, all those things – and what's keeping you from doing that, Mark? And then we would fear of what? And then you could have unpacked. Yeah, we that. could have unpacked everything. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. You could have unpacked it, but like, nope, don't want to hear it because you're just going to like. At a sometimes we need that tough love because because my wife is the same way a little bit because I do need to to talk things out with people. I, I can process things in my own head, but it's so much better when I can just be like, let me just give you these points, and it, I don't even need you to respond. Like, just 
just I can read your I can read your language usually or whatever, and I can talk things out. And one hundred percent, that would have been helpful in the moment. But but you know whether Evan did well or didn't do well, or whether you said the right thing or didn't say the right thing. I mean, you know, we're we're friends, and it wasn't a coaching session, and it wasn't anything like that. That's just yeah. the way it went down. But it always yeah, stuck that's the way with it went me down. because I realized that, and and you got to understand at that point, having known him for uh, I guess we're thirteen years in at that point, twelve years in a relationship. He was pretty tired of me just continually bringing in the same stuff and never taking action. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So Evan, I've talked to Evan before. Evan, if you happen to listen to the big love, bro. Right. Um, and so, um, but yeah, there's, there's that point. And so even in the way you might answer the question that I just asked, right. Um, the reason I asked it is so that you had the chance to socially process and maybe the podcast is not where you want to do that. No, but, but right. now I actually feel like I can't answer your question. And, and I think you have hit on something that I hadn't even remembered or, or thought about in a while that I do need to talk these things out, which makes, maybe makes me a good podcaster. I don't know. But um, what would be to answer your question? OK, so what's the courageous thing I need to do right now? I need to remember that that the way that I built Fanta the first time, um, which was to ask for help, to um, take a financial risk to realize that this takes six or nine or 12 months or two years as it takes however long it takes and that I need to build up sales and demand. That's what I need to do right now. Because what we've done with the agency is I've gone ahead and I've called back all of the team and all of the clients and, and I've spent the last year creating what frankly is a much better process, a much better outcome. It's the thing I do better than anything else. It's the thing that, that we all love, but I'm used to revenue. I'm used to team. I'm used to all these things. And I don't have any of that right now. And so uh, I live in the space between having all of the confidence and belief that what we do for people as brand strategists, I know works because we've produced over $12 million of content using it. But I need to be as bold and action focused and the risk taker I was when I was 23 or after the recession hit when I was like 25 or 26 and at 39 turning 40, I, I, I haven't, I haven't put the money down on the table. I haven't decided that this is the thing and it's going to happen come hell or high water. And, and that's the thing that, that frankly keeps me up at night right now. It scares me. Not that it won't work. It's that I need, I, I feel like I need to go all in and burn the boats. <laughs> So your whole linguistic structure there is really fascinating to me, Mark. Oh, wow. The, okay. Let's go. I need, I need, I need. But my question is, what do you want, Mark, right now? Mm. Does it always get this? Does it always get this deep? Or are we just doing this? No, we're fun. Just, no? We're uh, fun. And this is what we're doing. What, what do I want right now? I... I want to, I want people to allow me to help them. And the challenge that I have is, uh, that takes investment on their part. And, um, I, I, I don't like, maybe that's a sales challenge. Maybe it's a marketing challenge. Maybe it's a, whatever, a belief challenge in me, but, but I know, like, I know that we are so much better than others that what we have has so much value because I've done it for, for years and years and years, and I've taken people through the process. But this 
two or three three year hiatus or this like winding down the company and then like taking the very best product and winding it up has created this gap where I don't have the like reps the reps recently. I'm like I'm like the Olympic swimmer who takes a few years off and then isn't sure if they can be competitive again. And so what do I want? Like really it's just like I don't know if this sound like I feel like I'm sounding desperate now, but what I really want is just just let me help you. Like I just I know we can help you. And uh and and that's what I want more than anything else is to help solve people's problems and give and and help level them up and give them an extraordinary outcome and an extraordinary thing but I know that takes team because it's more than just me I know that takes an investment of time and money on the client's part and I just want to help more people like quite honestly I love that I love that and again um sometimes oftentimes when we center on what we need Right. There, there are a lot of times when we're talking to folks in, in our community and are like, I, I need to do this and I need to this. I need like, so I need to do. And I'm like, well, let's first start with what you actually need. And then figure out what to do about that. Right. But we get so stuck in that doing is going to solve the problem. When back to what I said earlier, we haven't give the doing a job yet, the right job. And so if we center on that, then we can take um, courageous next steps forward that are aligned and all those sort of things. And sometimes we can say, you know what, I'm actually in a place where I'm not ready to take that step and I'm still exploring it. And I don't need the pressure of some random ass podcast guest or host <laughs> asking me what, to, what I need to do next. Right. And that's, that's what I need right now. You know? No, I, I love, I love this, but at the same time, um, I, I love the questions you're asking. I love what you're working through. And um, this is also part of why I know that um, I'm with, like I'm the guy who's willing to go through the experiments. I'm the guy who's willing to like, if, if you want to ask me hard questions, I will answer them. Like even uncomfortably, I was on another podcast where they, where we actually walked through like how much money I burned through um, winding down the agency, giving clients back money, uh, letting people go. Like, like we talked about the like over half a million dollars I spent. I never planned to do that. <laughs> so, so part of what I like, I don't have a problem with vulnerability. Um, I, I, I have a, I have a challenge, um, believing in myself and most people struggle to understand that because they see like a really confident guy because I'm confident in, in a few areas, but there's the 30 or 40 areas that I just am unsure about that for yeah. some reason, most entrepreneurs I think are blind to or ignorant to, or they just don't care about and off they run and they make shit happen and they're super action focused. Um, I need, I need more of that stuff. Um, yeah. Well, um, as we start to wrap up thing, I, I, I want to say, first off, Mark, thank you for modeling the message of doing hard things on this very podcast episode. Um, so thank you for that. And as the guest for today's podcast, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon whatever most resonates with you. So based out of everything we've talked about today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? To me, it seems like so obvious. I want you, I'm going to challenge you to pick one thing that is worrying you or keeping you up at night. And I want you to reach out to three people and ask for help. They may not be able to help you. The person, when I started my business and I asked for help, 
did not help me. They connected me with, connected me with, connected me with someone who actually did help me. And in 2009, when I called my mom and I was like, I'm not sure what's going on. She was like, what do you need? I was like, well, I need a salesperson. How do you get a salesperson? I don't know. Someone else connected me with a headhunter. And every step along the way, you pulled it out the story, right? Like when I was in chemistry and failing, I should have gotten a tutor. I should have asked for help. Um, today, the reason why I'm willing to do this stuff is because it's like, like I, I know I need help. I know I can't do this alone. I know we can do amazing things if we bring the right people together. Um, and so, listener, I want you to think about that thing, right? If any part of this you think has been vulnerable, be vulnerable for a minute and just ask for help. Because trust me, like when I started admitting to customers and to my team and to everyone, I was like, I can't do this anymore. They stopped asking, they stopped caring about the business and they said, Mark, are you okay? And you need to let people in so that way they can say, hey, are you okay? Mark, thanks so much for joining you. That's a wonderful message. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Charlie. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Mark. Think about that issue that this is gripping you or you can't let it go. And think about three people that you can bring in to help you with that. We talk a lot about success packs here. We talk about a lot about like not thinking, how am I going to solve this, but who can help me solve this problem? And just remember that your pack wants you to win and they need you to need them. Let them in and you might find that there's way more possible with this project ahead of you. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. You've got great ideas. Now it's time to turn them into a project. Try our new app, Momentum, to easily create a schedule and help you achieve what matters most. It's a productivity coach in your pocket. To learn more, go to hellomomentum.app slash pod. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.